1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. We are again on this episode joined by Casey C. Tash, a PhD student at Colorado State University. As we have talked about on the previous episodes, she is studying cinnamon teal ecology, has been studying cinnamon teal ecology for probably close to four or five years now and is an expert on that particular species. On the, on the previous episode, we talked about basic cinnamon teal ecology, distribution, habitat requirements, and interesting things of that nature. On this episode, we're going to get into a bit more detail, more of the nitty-gritty of some of the research that Casey has been has been conducting, some of which has been completed, some of which is continuing as part of her PhD research. So, Casey, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: I think the way we want to set this up is to get you to first talk about your master's research, which I think you said you completed in 2018. Uh, let's just, I'm, I'm going to turn this over to you and tell us what were the basic interest of that, of that research and where were you doing it? You referenced on the previous episode that you conducted in Colorado, but let's talk a little bit more about that. So what was the interest in, where were you doing this work?
2: Yeah. So this kind of all started in 2013 when the Fish and Wildlife Service did a teal harvest assessment report and they, they examined all three teal species, um, to see what was the harvest potential for all of those, what was just their basic ecology and uh, abundance across North America. And they kind of came to the conclusion that we just don't know for cinnamon teal. We don't have any information on them. Uh, we don't know how many we can take because, as we mentioned in the last episode, um, they're combined. Their, their harvest and population estimates are combined with those of blue-winged teal. So they wanted to get uh, a large-scale banding operation going across Western US and also focus in on some of the more important breeding vital rates like survival and nest survival, et cetera, to see what what's going on with these birds, uh, how many can we take and you know, where are they? What are, what do they need? Is it different from blueing teal? We just don't know. So that was kind of the impetus for it. Um and as it's evolved there, it's kind of gone a- along different avenues. My my role in all of that was the breeding season work to see what habitat requirements they had, how what was their nest survival like, etc. And since then, they've also been doing the GPS transmitter work to see where are they wintering, what are their migration routes and what stopover habitat do they need. Uh, And, you know, in the West, you can't really talk about waterfowl without talking about water issues. So that's also a big component of what Mm -hmm. I'm doing now. And it's not just cinnamon teal, it's ducks in general. But as we see less and less water, as we see, you know, changing precipitation patterns uh, and more people, how is that going to affect these birds?
1: You mentioned that uh, this research is conducted in Colorado. So I will, I'll echo what you oftentimes get. Why Colorado? Why are you studying ducks in Colorado?
2: So there's these different intermountain basins here. We've got North Park, we've got Middle Park, South Park, and then the San Luis Valley. And they all have wetlands associated with them. Some of them have been uh, diverted for other water uses at this point. But the ones that do still exist are some of the higher breeding densities of ducks in the state. And again, you still might say, even if they're high in the state, they're, they're nothing like the prairie potholes. But we know from banding data from the 70s all the way up till today, that the, of the birds that are banded in Colorado, the ones that get shot, uh, over 75% of them are shot in Colorado. So while it's not the duck factory of yore, it's it's still regionally pretty important um, for for harvest numbers and for hunt quality in the area.
1: Now, I kind of made that comment sort of tongue-in-cheek about, you know, why are you studying ducks in Colorado? But but because the San Luis Valley, I've read a few papers here and there. And of course, the San Luis Valley is – it's a, is a well-studied area, and a lot of it aligns with, with Cinnamon Teal. Uh, I've never been there, but I've uh, I've kind of read about it and kind of understand some of the area. It sounds like a really cool place, and um, that's on one of my bucket lists for places I need to visit, would like to visit. So
2: It's a special place. I mean, I went on one of my first duck hunts there, and it's still to this day the best duck hunt I've ever been on. There were just constant ducks everywhere in there. And uh, – it's it's a really unique system in terms of the water that's that's there and that's used and the way that they manage the water because so they've they've got first well, okay. First in the nineties, it was uh, estimated to have the highest breeding density of ducks. The specific National Wildlife Refuge that I worked on for my master's, which is Monta Vista, it was estimated that they had the highest breeding density of ducks in the country at that time, um, which is unheard of and and not what anyone expected, and I definitely don't think that that's the case now with the overappropriation of water that's that's going on. But it's it's still, especially for cinnamon teal, one of the higher breeding density areas in the country.
1: Let's talk. Let's start talking about your master's research in in a bit more uh, detail. We've, we talked on the previous episode how there's not very much known about this species. There are a number of studies that have investigated cinnamon teal here and there. Uh, one of the topics that you investigated was something called nest attendance. And that, you know, the pattern of which a female is, is on the nest during laying an incubation. I'll let you talk more about that. But one of the things that I actually, I looked up prior to this episode was one of the one of the papers that you had cited. And I think it was probably by Bill Holman. Maybe the publication date was nineteen ninety one. And that was, I think, the mm-hmm. only other existing study of incubation patterns, nest attendance, and sediment teal. And he studied the data he collected was from two hens, two. <laughs> that was it. Whenever, whenever I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh! There's like really not much at all known about certain aspects of this particular species, and so that had to be pretty exciting for you to know that you were you were going to be one of the one of the people contributing to a, in many ways, foundational understanding of the ecology of this. Species. That's not to say there hadn't been some work done previously. Jim Gammonly, uh, the waterfowl biologist for the state of Colorado, I think actually did some some of his uh, graduate research on cinnam- cinnamon teal, and so there's some literature out there, but not a whole lot. So, what was what's that like? You know, I studied mallards, male mallards, as part of my master's research. So, what's it what's it like studying a bird that we don't know very much about? Is it exciting? Is it challenging? Or is it is it all of the above?
2: It's definitely all of the above. I have a couple of things. Jim, first of all, is on my PhD committee and he is definitely who I would consider the cinnamon teal expert among, among us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's hard as a fresh master's student. I came in at 22 years old and they said, you know, write a proposal on what you want to study about cinnamon teal. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just read the literature. And there isn't any, I mean, you have to go back to the fifties. Uh, and then there's one master's thesis that was done at Utah state on cinnamon teal ecology, which is very comprehensive, but it's, it's the only document out there pretty much. And uh, you know, I think that, that Bill Holman study, Reflects the, the nest density that we kind of expect out here. Um, we were, I, it wounds me sometimes to see the work coming out of the prairie potholes when they're finding hundreds and hundreds of nests. Yeah. And just recently we, uh, we, we rope dragged, I think it was like, it was over 300 acres with 11 people and you, you have to do it all on foot here. And we found three nests the whole time. So <laughs> they're just, they're not nesting in high density out here. Um, so that makes it a little bit more challenging and, uh, yeah it's a little intimidating, but it's it's you' not what you'd expect to be in the waterfowl world and still be doing some of this kind of basic science. I feel like i my master's was reminiscent of like the work that was done in the eighties and nineties kind of on on uh, some of these other species,
1: yeah yeah, and I'm sure i- suspect you know Lizzie boncheck the, studying model ducks in Louisiana. Uh, I I suspect that, that you two could share stories of frustration and um and just hurdles that you've had to overcome or try to overcome with studying these species. Lizzie studying monoducts, you studying cinnamon teal. And so of course I I'm on I'm on Lizzie's uh committee and so I I Understand. I see some of the frustrations that she has to to deal with. It's an incredibly difficult species to study. Cinnamon teal is probably going to be the same way, partly because they nest, as you've described, in such low density. So, uh, have you and Lizzie commiserated about the struggles, the challenges of studying these these two species at all?
2: Yeah, definitely. She, I mean, we, we both follow each other on Instagram, and it's a nice way to commiserate with fellow field biologists who are, you know, you see <laughs> these really cool pictures of duck banding, and that doesn't really reflect like the miles and miles you walk to find that that one nest.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I can I can attest to that. Let's talk about your research, your masters. Now, I, I think there were you, you have two publications that are either out or I think one is out and maybe one is about to be uh, actually uh, published and one of them dealt with uh, nest site selection where are these cinnamon teal hens nesting and then the other dealt with what i referenced earlier in terms of nest attendance uh the pattern at which a, a hen stays on the nest and so let's just talk about the first one we don't we're not going to be able to go into a great uh great amount of detail but just sort of lay this out. How, what was involved? How did you find the nest? And then generally speaking, what did you, what did you learn in terms of where these were cinnamon teal hens were nesting and what was their nest survival?
2: Yeah. Some of the, um, habitats down there that they're typically nesting or that we thought they would be nesting in were these, these flooded wet meadows that are mostly comprised of rushes and sedges, And there's quite a bit of greasewood or Chico, as it's colloquially called, um, and some sagebrush down there in the San Luis Valley, uh, and then huge expanses of just cattail wetlands. Uh, So we wanted to kind of see what times of the breeding season they were using those different habitat types. And we didn't really know where we were going to be able to find nests. So we, we targeted areas by searching out the, the pairs early on in the breeding season. And if we saw a male that was sitting by himself on a wetland, we would search around there. But we also wanted to set up plots that kind of spanned different habitat types to make sure that that was fairly representative. And we found, I think, almost every single nest in these really, really dense uh, fields of Baltic rush. And they've got this kind of, not, not understory, but it, they're they're thick enough to Tunnel through, and we found that they mm-hmm. the cinnamons would kind of tunnel in through this vegetation, and that that really dense uh, vegetation was important for them to be able to, you know, to have higher nest survival. And we found we uh, there are some invasive forb species down there, white uh, white top being one of them. And if there was there were high proportions of forbs anywhere near the nest site, they would not only Choose that site less frequently, but also uh, it would lead to lower nest survival. So we can't say for sure that it was those invasive forbs specifically that that caused that decline in nest survival. But um, it seems like when they've got this these other this vegetation that breaks up the structure, like that like forbs do, uh, it it's not beneficial for them. And it's actually kind of opposite of what we see what we've seen in some studies that go on in the prairies. And i I don't have a great explanation for that. It just seems like in this area they really need that really thick tunnel uh, the tunnelable, if you will, vegetation.
1: The other question I was gonna ask you was just about how you located these nests and how difficult it sounds like it would be incredibly difficult to to find the nest. I understand the basics of. Of uh, nest dragging, you and I think you've described it already. Where you're, um, well, I'll just let you let you describe it. How would you find them, and how difficult was it?
2: So, since all of these areas are so wet, uh, you can't really use ATVs like they do in the prairies. So, all of the nest searching we did was on foot. And typically, if if it was a flooded meadow of of Baltic rush, we would just drag that with a rope between two people and some chains hanging off of it. Um, but if it's you know cattails or or any kind of shrub vegetation, you can't really drag that too well. So you're in there just beating the bush, uh, trying to find, trying to flush up anything. And usually you have this sweet spot of about two or three weeks where the vegetation's not too high and the birds are starting to nest and they're not far enough into incubation where they're going to sit really tight. So you almost have to step on them to flush them. And it's like the perfect time to find nests, Uh, So, we try to target as much of our effort as possible to those few weeks.
1: Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that because the way you described it with this uh, vegetation, almost as though they would tunnel into their nest site. I could just imagine a situation where they might just – they might – day on the nest and not flush until you just got right on them. That uh, And so that would make it very difficult. So it sounds like you you kind of, yeah, if you're timing it early, then you have a better chance of, of getting them to flush off the nest. So again, that's one of the more exciting aspects of that kind of field research is where you're actually able to see that that hen come flying up out of the weeds there, right?
2: I have screamed many a time from flushing a <laughs> duck nest. <laughs> but yeah, it's also, uh, we didn't want to get them too early because we were finding Uh, very high abandonment rates with these birds. If we would flush them when they were still laying, uh, almost every time they would abandon that nest. And they typically re-nest fairly close, but that makes studying nest survival relatively difficult. And it's actually pretty consistent with what Josh Best found when he was doing his PhD, uh, who's, I guess, now with prey pothole joint venture, mm-hmm. there's like a quarter of the nests that were, or a quarter of the hens that were abandoning.
1: Well, that's interesting that the early abandonment, I uh, hadn't really thought about that. Let's talk about, you mentioned that nest survival or that they seem to prefer these areas that were, that had less forbs, less uh, herbaceous uh, broadleafed uh, plants, but what did you find with respect to nest survival? I assume that was part of your research. What, how did it, what did you find? How did it co- did it compare to nest survival for some other species?
2: Fairly comparable to most dabbling ducks in the prairies It was fairly low, uh, about 20% or so. Um, and the, the things that you would typically associate with higher nest survival, which for dabbling ducks is often earlier nests that are initiated earlier in the season. And, uh, also, for this, was the higher pr- proportion of these grass species or, or rushes, graminoids is what we called them, um, <clears throat> anything that wasn't orbs, essentially.
1: 20% is, I, I, that's low. But I always try to reframe that. At least I've, I've started on these discussions reframing it and saying, you know, so 20% survival of the nest means basically what that means is 20% of the nest hatched at least one egg. And so, when you reverse that, it basically means that eighty percent of the nests did not hatch any eggs. That and that kind of puts it in into, uh, for me anyway. And I don't know, maybe it's just the way I think about it. But when you start talking about. 80% of the nests are destroyed. That really puts into perspective the challenge that these ducks have in pulling off a clutch of eggs. And raise, And then once they do that, they have to raise those ducklings through to fledge. And so, again, you start to compound these things and you see how really difficult it is for uh, for, for ducks to, to sustain their populations. And, then of course, we can extend, extend that and say that's why it's so important for some of the research that you do so that we can figure out what kind of habitat characteristics allow us to squeeze out an additional five percent or an additional ten percent in terms of nest success? And when you're talking about nest success of only twenty percent, that additional five or ten percent, if we can figure that out, uh, is becomes really important. So, anyway, just some perspective there for me and how I think about that. Did any of that? Do you kind of run that through your mind at all sometimes?
2: Yeah, it it blows my mind that any survive, to be honest, especially with these little small bodied birds that uh, we'll talk about nest attendance in a second, but they're spending almost the entire day incubating these eggs and they rarely get a chance to go forage. And when they do, it's it's so important for the habitat to be good or they're not going to survive, you know, let alone their their eggs and their ducklings. And it's, it's crazy to see just anything will eat an egg or a duckling. They're the perfect little morsel and... If they don't have the, the appropriate nesting habitat and something tips off a predator to that, they're they're goners.
1: Absolutely. And you provided yet another great segue to what I want to talk about now, and that's nest attendance. The other aspect, uh, at, least, at least one other aspect of your master's research. So let's just go into that. Uh, I've alluded to it a couple of times, but. Define nest attendance, Describe it for people that may not um, that they may not know what we're talking about.
2: It's essentially how much of the day are they spending on the nest. And if they do leave the nest, how long are they leaving it? How, how frequently are they leaving it? Is it just once a day or is it five times a day? Um, and just getting a basic idea for the kind of cadence of their incubation patterns it's it's a little bit harder to determine these patterns during laying because the the traditional knowledge is that ducks lay one egg a day and don't incubate during that time but some studies have have proven that a little bit false that they they actually are incubating as they as they go as they lay an egg per day um but we were mostly interested in during incubation, what what are they doing on
1: there? Break this down a little bit for us, for those that may not have spent much time studying or thinking about incubation, egg-laying patterns of, of ducks. I mean, then the other thing is that cinnamon teal nest on the ground. So we kind of have to, I'm just trying to help paint a mental image for people. You have these nests on the ground in the, in the rush, in the, the Baltic rushes, as you've described. Then kind of describe their pattern of nest visitation and nest attendance as they go from egg laying in through incubation. And you can weave into this story any of what you found, but I just want people to appreciate exactly what these what these birds are doing through that nesting period.
2: Typically, the pair will find a, a pretty suitable wetland that, that will eventually be used as a foraging site for the female. And the male will sit on that wetland while the, the female goes and scopes out different nesting sites. And when she finds one she likes, she'll, uh, she'll typically lay one egg a day. Um, there's some really interesting research that I think, I think it was on mallards in like the nineties where they would, would take the eggs out every day to see how many eggs they would actually lay in consecutive uh, on consecutive days. And it was, it was like something astronomical, like dozens of eggs that they would just keep going. Um, but once they, they, they get to about 10, 10 is the average clutch size for these guys. They'll, they'll start incubating. And, uh, we found that they're spending about 90-ish percent of the day on the nest. Uh, they're typically only mo- taking one or two recesses per day. So recess is what we consider when, uh, consider it when they leave the nest for any, any period of time longer than two minutes. Um, and most of those are, are foraging. They'll cover the nest up with their down and grass that they have in that nest bowl and, and leave to go feed themselves and get, get the energetic reserves that they need back um, during the day what about their
1: their nest attendance pattern in in egg laying uh, during that egg laying stage they just they're they're uh, they're at that nest site laying that egg for only a short period of time earlier in the laying period right
2: right and i i think they try to stay away from it as much as possible because any activity at that nest site can potentially draw in predators
1: yeah so they we have these birds going to the nest laying an egg and it's usually in the morning right when they're laying right yep yeah, and and so then as they get closer, one then then once they get to incubation, they're on the the nest. What percentage of the day did you say?
2: About ninety.
1: Ninety percent, and only the female incubates in ducks,
2: right? In cinnamons, yeah. We had one. We so we used trail cameras on some of these nests to to get these attendance patterns, and there's one where a male came in through the the frame of the picture and looked like he was about to start incubating, and I was so excited that we had discovered a new behavior, but he, he was just walking on by.
1: Yeah. Um, that would have been really cool, but uh, yeah, for most dabbling ducks, um, there's just a female that does the incubation. Uh, so the other thing that you mentioned is the fact that, that that ducks will, they'll, they'll create a nest bowl. Uh, And Mike Anderson, we had him on a previous episode and he was saying, you know, there's 144 species of waterfowl worldwide and, or somewhere in the neighborhood of 140, 144, and none of them bring nest material. And I actually wasn't, this had not occurred to me. None of those 140 or so species bring nest material to the nest bowl. They build the nest out of construct the nest out of material that's right there within a bill's grasp of them. And then as they get into incubation, they they add down. They'll pick down from their from their body, from their breast, and then they'll add that to the to the nest bowl to to provide additional insulative properties. The cinnamon teal do the same thing, I'm guessing.
2: We do. And actually, we, we took a bunch of feathers. Uh, they'll sometimes pluck those outer contour feathers that make up their, their actual plumage. Um, so we took those on every nest <clears throat> after it had either hatched or failed. And <clears throat> excuse me, we still, still got them in the hopes that we can eventually do some kind of genetic analyses to see whether they were, in fact, all cinnamons or whether there's any hybridization going on with blue wings.
0: You and your dog
1: One of the other interesting things that I learned whenever I was a field technician back in the 90s is that – and I found this to be one of the coolest things – is that for some species, maybe not with with cinnamons and blue wings, but for some species like mallards, gadwall, pintails, and a few others, you can tell what species it is by looking at the the – the color pattern on the feather itself that you find there at the nest bowl, which I thought was the coolest thing to know that the pattern of the color pattern on some of these feathers differs between species. Um, So another fascinating thing about how the many ways that we can identify, uh, identify duck species, of course, the, the egg size and shape and color also differs between some of these species, but you can also kind of glean some information from the, Uh, color pattern on on these feathers there. So you talked about how you use nest cameras to determine this incubation, this, I shouldn't say incubation, the nest attendance pattern. Uh, Just today, the day that we're recording this, actually, I'm sorry, it was last week, we released an episode where we had spoken with Dr. Susan Feligi and she talked about her use of surveillance cameras to to, uh, actually, she was just kind of looking at at predation, uh, what was actually mm-hmm. responsible, what kind of animals were responsible for for destroying duck nests in the prairies. You used similar type of nest surveillance, nest camera technologies in this particular study, right?
2: We did. And she was instrumental in helping me get the right equipment for those um, and setting them up. They're very useful in a wetland setting, but you have to make sure all the cords and batteries are actually out of the water. And I think she mentioned in that episode that Uh, for some of these species nesting in this dense vegetation, they don't work super well. So we actually ended up, we used a mix of trail cameras and those surveillance cameras, but we ended up with almost about half of the nest that we had cameras on. We couldn't use any of the footage because as soon as you'd put the nest or put the camera over the nest, the the teal would just pull that vegetation right back over herself to make a little tunneled bowl, essentially. And you couldn't see her, her movements at all throughout incubation.
1: Wow. Uh, They, yeah, it just goes to show they are, they do certain things for certain reasons. We may not know exactly why they do it. I don't think they were doing it for privacy, probably something else. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Who knows? Now, I, I did mention at the outset that we can't go into a great deal of detail. We don't have enough time to cover all the, all the, the real fine stuff. But with respect to the nest attendance patterns, what was what were some of the most interesting findings? What were some of the more surprising findings? What do you like to tell people uh, whenever you're describing what you found from this particular part of your research?
2: One of the more interesting findings uh, was that they're they're taking these recesses more frequently in the afternoons. And the the temperature fluctuations are so high in this region where it's high elevation and really they're low humidity, so you go from thirty degrees at night sometimes to eighty or ninety during the day, uh, and they they seem to be taking advantage of those higher afternoon temperatures uh, when the risk of those eggs getting too cold is lowest. So that's when they'd actually leave to go to go forage when they could pretty much ensure that those eggs were going to be okay, and. We couldn't tell for sure if that was also related to predator activity or behaviors at different times of day, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's also the case.
1: So this time of year, we're recording this in June. So are your your, your evening and nighttime temperatures still getting down into the 30s now or is this, is it's? Do those kind of temperature ranges occur earlier in the spring?
2: Uh, Tonight, uh, the forecast is a mix of rain and snow. So, yeah, they're still getting down there.
1: So, that's interesting. They're taking these afternoon breaks warmer time of the day. Uh, because yeah the ambient temperature can keep those eggs uh, eggs closer to whatever that temperature needs to be and I don't know what that temperature needs to be but I know that the down also kind of helps provide some more constancy in the temperatures for those eggs whenever they're um, whenever they they do leave what about the duration of these? these recesses, as we call them, the length of time that they're off the nest. Do do those vary as the birds go through that nesting and incubation stage? And then like, just what's the average length of of recess, if if you know?
2: I think it makes it even more impressive when you hear this, that they, that they get any eggs out or ducklings out with Without dying themselves because they're typically only spending about an hour, maybe an hour and a half off the nest on a given recess. And again, they're, they're only taking one, maybe two a day. So they're not off the nest for very much time at all. And, uh, you can see as they get further into incubation, especially the last few days before the ducklings hatch, they're, they're, Increasing the what we call the incubation constancy, so they're spending even more, a higher percentage of the day on the nest. They're they're decreasing the frequency and the duration of those mm. those recesses.
1: Well, that's that's fascinating. I remember back in the day when people had to study the the incubation constancy using these little hobo, what we called hobo data loggers. It was an artificial egg, and inside the egg was this little thermistor, and it had a wire running to this little data logger. Uh, now. Folks like yourself, researchers such as such as you, are using these surveillance cameras, and so that gets that gets a lot more information. It doesn't really get the temperature, I guess, but it gets these patterns of, of attendance and also gets you – know, you can see what's visiting and destroying the nest and things of that nature. And so I guess in that regard, just one final quick question on this, and then we'll move on to a, just sort of a brief introduction of your PhD work. Did you make any interesting observations of uh, – Unexpected nest predators? Uh
2: not as interesting as white-tailed deer with Dr. Ellis yeah. Beligi, but uh we did see a coyote. Um and other than that, we we missed quite a few of the predation events just because the vegetation was so dense you couldn't see anything. Um, Oftentimes they would move the camera or knock it over and you you knew the nest had failed, but you didn't you couldn't see what had, had eaten it. Oh,
1: doggone. Uh well, yeah. That had to be frustrating. I can imagine yeah, as, a, as a researcher, you see a nest is destroyed and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you get really excited because you, you're thinking that you've got this captured on the surveillance camera and then it's like, oh, bummer.
2: It was frustrating, especially because we had so many different kinds of predators out there. I was, I, I was assuming ravens were the, the primary one, but still don't know.
1: Huh. Ravens. Ravens as an important predator of duck nests. Um, it's something that, that oftentimes kind of gets overlooked in, wh- in what we think about are there some of the primary culprits out there.
2: There's just one quick raven anecdote. There was a raven's nest on the refuge and we stopped at it one day just to, because we noticed a few duck eggs underneath it. So, we counted all the duck eggs and I think there were 46 under this one raven's nest.
1: Oh my goodness. So, they not only destroy the, the eggs well, they'll they'll remove them from the nest and then they take them back to their, um, mm-hmm. to their, ne- their nest. Right? Wow. Well, let's let's shift now. Let's talk about your PhD. That's fascinating work. Foundational understanding of nesting ecology of cinnamon teal. But now you're you're still studying the nesting ecology, breeding ecology of cinnamon teal. But there's a a little bit of a different angle to this, to your PhD research, something that has a, uh, I think this is fair, a more direct connection to some, some habitat work, some conservation work. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, so this is still in Colorado. Um, it's in North Park, which is pretty similar to the San Luis Valley, but the water system is a little bit different. It's uh, very agricultural here, and they are mainly growing hay. It's a, a big hay exporter. Some of the, the Kentucky Derby thoroughbreds eat North Park hay, from what I've heard. And uh, they they use exclusively flood irrigation. So they're not using the big center pivots that they are typically using down in the San Luis Valley. Uh, so we've got a couple of different rivers that all flow into the North Platte River that as the as it goes into Wyoming up here. And they essentially divert water from that to flood these uh, wet meadows and Ducks Unlimited is a big part of that because they come in and create these relationships with ranchers up here to improve their irrigation infrastructure. Oftentimes, you know, a head gate will break or they need a new ditch dug or just any kind of projects. And uh, the theory behind that is that ducks are using these wet hay meadows for nesting or for stopover habitat um, or we... Just something. We, we always think that there's water out there and therefore they're using it. And my project is, is really testing that, really seeing if they are using it. And, uh, if not, what are they, what habitats are they using and how can we best direct the funds that DU uh, provides to these ranchers to really benefit the agricultural production, as well as the birds that are using it.
1: Another one of those times where we talk about things that are second nature to us, but I just want to remind folks, those that might've missed it on an earlier episode, flood irrigation. That's actually what it sounds like, where instead of the center pivot or you know the sprinkler type of irrigation, this is where they actually uh, inundate a given field, pasture, hay in this case. Uh, how deep is the water? How deep do they put the water on? One or two inches or is it more?
2: Yeah, anywhere from an inch or two to sometimes six.
1: Oh, okay. And that's the exact same practice that we talked about last year with Amelia Raquel when she was describing some of the work that goes on in a region known as Sonic, uh, Southern Oregon, Northeastern California. It's the same type of kind of irrigation practice there. In that region, that practice is really important for spring migrating waterfowl. And here you're talking about its importance from a breeding standpoint, cinnamon teal being the focus of your study. What type of study methods are you using? Is it similar to what you did for your master's or are you involving radio telemetry or anything of that nature?
2: It's pretty similar, only uh, we're using GPS transmitters. And because of that, we we decided to shift our focus from cinnamon teal to to mallards and and also gadwall. Just because they're. They're definitely the most abundant here and they're bigger so we can use bigger transmitters, which means less money. Um, and so we, we spend time early on in the season trying to use decoy traps, which we've got captive mallard hens that we, we use to try to lure in wild mallard hens to put the GPS transmitters on them. And uh, we've had actually a decent amount of success just using baited swimming traps to catch gadwall, which has been kind of surprising um, this year. So we figured we'd do the earliest nester being mallards, and and the latest nester or one of the latest ones being gadwall. We we wanted to see, you know, early in the season they they only cut this hay once a year, and it's typically late July to early September. So there's not a whole lot of residual vegetation left over when the birds first start arriving. So you would predict potentially that these early nesters like mallards are not going to be able to nest in hay meadows because there's, there's nothing really for them to nest in. It's only a couple inches tall, if that. Um, so maybe are they using the irrigation ditches, which the, the tractors that they used to cut are not able to, to go over. So they, there is some re- residual vegetation and there there's typically water flowing through those ditches. So they can kind of use those as corridors, um, but then there's all sorts of questions about, is that an ecological trap? Are predators using those as corridors as well? Um, there's there's a lot of details we can get into.
1: Yeah, well, we don't want to get into all those details right now because I know at some point in the future, you will have some useful insights from once you've collected some some of the data. And uh, Actually, I guess you're already collecting some of the data. Is this the first or second field season of this research?
2: This is the second. And actually, uh, in 2018, parks and Colorado parks and wildlife started a general waterfowl monitoring project up here. So this, I, and I worked on that in between my master's and my PhD. So this is my third season up here and we'll have one more next year.
1: Oh, okay. So you said that radio telemetry is being applied to mallards and gadwall and here throughout these podcasts, I've been referencing your PhD work also dealing with cinnamon teal. Is is that the case? Do you have some cinnamon teal? Like, are you doing other, just kind of general nest searching and um, where you're able to find some cinnamon teal or are they a uh, lower priority in this particular research?
2: Uh, we're definitely still looking for them. Uh, we're, we're interested in all, any nests we can find because they are in such low density that we need everyone we can get to answer some of the questions yeah. we're interested in. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're looking for all species and we're going to be doing some similar nest, uh, nest site selection questions and trying to get at whether these hay meadows are actually beneficial and are they using them at all, but all species.
1: We won't go into great detail here, but I will give you an opportunity if there are any fascinating observations that you've made here over the first couple of years of this study. You said you have some um, GPS marked birds. Uh, I don't know how long those, those transmitters last, but if you're able to follow them out of Colorado and into other Area you know, under the wintering grounds. Any observations from that or any other, any other just interesting, interesting anecdotes that you wanted to share here before we close out?
2: One of the things that's been really interesting, just looking at the raw GPS data, is how much they do use these irrigation ditches. We had one mallard that nested along a creek last year and she essentially raised her ducklings in, a, in an irrigation ditch. And the timing of water, there, therefore, is probably going to be pretty important, which the the landowners don't have a whole lot of control over. It's kind of when it's available, that's when you can use it. Um, but just seeing that there, we haven't really found any nests in hay meadows and that's been fairly surprising, mm-hmm. but we do see them using the the other infrastructure that's associated with those hay meadows. So I think it'll be pretty informative to, to Ducks Unlimited and just anyone with, you know, ranchers and Water users in the west because this this habitat is it's kind of reminiscent of what people did fifty or a hundred years ago and uh, also similar to some of the other intermountain basins across the whole West.
1: I said I wasn't going to ask you a lot of questions about this research, but my, my interest is really, really peaked right now. So <laughs> is, the, is the is any of that flood irrigated land available as potential brood rearing habitat? You talked about the brood being raised in the irrigation ditch, but so I'm guessing by brood rearing time, most of the water is off. Is that right?
2: Uh, well, for mallards, definitely not. Uh, I think it's, it's going to be more important than previously thought for brood rearing. Um, we see a lot of ducklings go to these big reservoirs that are, you know, there's a few throughout the area that they all seem to congregate on, but how they're getting to those reservoirs remains to be seen. And that's going to be one of the big questions with the GPS data. Yeah, And how much,
1: how much existing natural wetlands are, are still in this landscape? Is there much at all? Like, so if the, if the irrigation ditch doesn't have water in it, if you don't have water on the. Uh, on the fields, irrigation water on the fields. Are there other um, and how many other wetlands are nearby that they could use outside of the reservoirs?
2: Yeah, actually there's um, Arapaho National Wildlife Refuge is right in the center of the whole area and they flood specifically for ducks. So they've got, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. They've got these flooded wet meadows that they Graze occasionally, but they don't hay, so they don't cut them. Um, so there is res- residual vegetation the next year when those birds start nesting. So we're trying to look at are they only, are they nesting in those wet meadows, but not the hay meadows? And then they also flood quite a few basin wetlands, just little ponds interspersed throughout. So, and there are storage ponds as well on the ranches. So there's, there's a decent number of, if not natural wetlands, more man-made ponds.
1: Well this sounds like a really interesting study sounds like a really interesting landscape in which to study ducks as I mentioned I've never I've never set, stepped foot in in either of the regions where you have studied or are studying and yeah I appreciate you taking the time to help me and help our listeners understand a bit more, number one, about cinnamon teal from a previous episode, but then in number two, some of what you learned about the ecology of cinnamon teal and now the research that you're doing as part of your PhD. And, you know, that's, this is the exciting type of research where we have some important science that is directly related to how our habitat conservation efforts, flood irrigation work in this particular case, links to the habitat needs and the ecology of the species for which we're trying to do this and it's all in the all in the vein of ensuring that the resources that we're putting on the ground through our conservation are actually delivering benefits to waterfowl populations as we hope they are and if they're not then how can we adapt our conservation practices to better achieve those uh, those gains to to waterfowl so this is exactly the type of research that I get excited about because you have that really strong link to our conservation actions. We have some, some of this going in other locations throughout the country. And so, uh, Casey, it's, it's exciting to have you as part of that particular research. Uh, again, congratulations on having completed your master's a few years ago, a couple of the publications that you have out. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing, uh, I'm sure an easy way to, to access some of this information is a quick Google search. You can search Casey Tash at C-A-S-E-Y-S-E-T-A-S-H. And and then if you wanted to get more instant hit, you could... Add cinnamon teal to that search, and I'm sure you would have some publications come up. I know there's an actual a little blog article that was out a few weeks ago talking about some of this some of this work. So, uh, any any final words for our listeners? I certainly encourage them to look you up to learn more about the work that you're doing.
2: You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Canard Casey. Canard is just duck in French, um, and yeah, I think that I I will say one last interesting tidbit about this research it's actually being funded by the Colorado Water Conservation Board who they have their own plan that they use to prioritize water use throughout the state um, or throughout this wet uh, watershed this basin and one of their priorities is is managing for um, for wildlife use in addition to agricultural use so it's I I It's amazing that they funded a project like this, and I'm really appreciative um, that, you know, we get to do the science that's going to inform, hopefully, something that's beneficial for the producers and the birds.
1: Absolutely. That's a great point. I guess I probably didn't realize that, but that's just another example of how we are increasingly realizing and championing the benefits of waterfowl conservation. And in this case, waterfowl conservation research to... Uh, to aspects of society and of the world around us beyond waterfowl. We've talked on other episodes about ecosystem services and how Wetlands benefit way more than just ducks, and geese, and swans. And uh, there are f- fish is another example where we've partnered with some fish conservation organizations on some projects or even on some research. And so another great example of that, and this is, relates to water issues and uh, ranching interest. And so, yeah, the more we can find those areas of common interest, the more we can partner with other groups and the more we can all collectively make a big difference. Uh, a bigger, more productive impact. And hey, that's what it's all about. So that's cool. Thanks for adding that, Casey.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So in that vein, who are we got to make sure we recognize some of the other funding partners and, and and agencies that help support your research. So who are some of those entities, both for your master's research and your current PhD work?
2: Yeah. So along with CWCB, there's kind of a whole long laundry list of folks that have helped out uh, for my current work. Obviously, Colorado State and the the Jim Kennedy Endowed Chair in Wetlands and Waterfowl Research. Um, Ducks Unlimited is a big partner, along with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and the Institute for Wetland and Waterfowl Research, the folks who awarded me with the BAT Fellowship um, through DU Canada. And um, under kind of the heading of Colorado Water Conservation Board is the North Platte Basin Roundtable, the the folks in the actual watershed that make those decisions. Um, Some smaller ones, we've got Colorado Field Ornithologists that have helped with some field supplies and the Gates Foundation. Um, And then for my master's, that was all funded by Fish and Wildlife Service, the Division of Migratory Birds, um, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife helped out a bit there as well.
1: Fantastic. That's another illustration of how there's, there's nothing that we do that is done in isolation of some of our partners. So thanks for, for adding that information, Casey, and, and thanks to all those partners for their support in, in your research, both your master's and your PhD. Casey, that's going to wrap it up here. I, again, thank you so much for your time. I know that you are. Joining us from from your truck, from a some kind of mountaintop, I'm sure it's a much more beautiful view than what I have right now. It's actually raining outside and windy, and I know it's windy there too, but I am Im- imagining the scenery is much, much better than what I'm looking at here. But again, you've been gracious with your time, and we thank you for that, and we also thank you for your expertise Uh, So, yeah, thanks for joining the podcast, Casey.
2: Yeah, thank you. It would be beautiful if it weren't starting the rain-snow mix, but that's what you get at (laughs) 8,500 feet in June in Colorado.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy it. So, thanks, Casey. Thank you. Again, we extend special thanks to Casey Setash for sharing her time, sharing her expertise with us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. It's been great having her on, and, and congratulations to her as being a recipient of the Bruce Bat. Uh, Fellowship this year in 2020. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does with this podcast and more times than not, making us sound way better than we actually are. So, Clay, thank you for all the great work that you do. Uh, And then the listeners, we thank you so much for tuning in. We thank you for spending your time with us, sharing your comments and your feedback with us. We always encourage that. And then most importantly, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.